I am guilty of having watched one of these, but I don't know if you've seen the, the uh, unboxing YouTube videos, right? They're, they're, uh, they're capturing the essence of the joy that you're, you're supposed to experience when you open something for the first time and you're excited. You have this made this major purchase and, uh, and you want to open it and there's all the excitement of how flashy it is. Uh, and so, you know, instead of that, you can go to YouTube and you can watch somebody else do it, right? And you can sort of live vicariously through them uh, as they unbox, as they unveil as it is that newest product. And I think part of it is it, it really gets to the heart of our culture's idol of consumerism, right? We, uh, we find our identity in the purchases that we make, the things that we buy, uh, you know, those really reflect, or at least we want them to reflect who we are, our identity. Uh, and so I, I, uh, I was in the, the uh, I needed a new saw, a miter saw. And so, you know, I looked on YouTube, what are the best miter saws? And I probably should have just asked Glenn, but uh, it's better to watch an unboxing. And so, oh, we have, we have a volunteer for... <laughs> And so, you know, how YouTube is, so you'd start watching one, and then, you know, who, soon you're watching all kinds of different things, and it usually ends with cats doing something. Uh, but, but the interesting thing in our text this morning is that John the Baptist is really an unboxer, right? He is unveiling the Word made flesh. He came to prepare the way for Jesus. He was before Jesus, but Jesus ranked higher than him. We are on part three of our five-part walk through the prologue to John's gospel, and we're going to be focusing our attention on verses six through eight and verse 15. Um, But we are, uh, but what we find is that John came to unveil, to unbox, to reveal Jesus, the Word made flesh. And as he did, he He was tasked and called with the specific purpose of bearing witness to the light. And one of of two things you will find as a Christian, you'll fall into either you will make excuses about bearing witness, about speaking boldly about Jesus. You'll say, well, I don't know if I'm gifted enough or if I know enough or if I have a a great testimony that I can really share with somebody, or you might want to tell somebody about something, but you'll end up telling them about the wrong thing. You might want to tell them about Jesus, but really all you've talked about is how Jesus has made your life better. And you're really living your best life now instead of proclaiming Jesus Christ. Both of these two ways we fall into uh, when it comes to bearing witness about Jesus Christ. But what what we see from this text is that God continues to raise up servants to speak boldly about Jesus Christ. So please turn with me. We're going to read the prologue in its entirety. but We're going to focus our attention on verse 6 and 8, 6 through 8. Please stand for the gospel reading. As you are able. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. 
All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Almighty God, Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this, your word. And we ask that as we open it, you would open our eyes to behold wonders therein. For we pray this in Jesus' strong name. Amen. You may be seated. I want to look at this, these, uh, the witness of John the Baptist in two parts. God raises up witnesses. We notice that from verse 6. But he also gives them something to speak. To speak boldly about the light. To speak boldly about Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at these verses under those two headings. If you notice in verse 6, it says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. So what? And he came as a witness. These three things characterize John and his mission, his calling. He is a man, he was sent from God, and he had a particular mission, a particular vocation, a calling to be a witness. First, he is a man. This might be striking. Uh, you'd think that if the Son of God is going to come to earth, he's going to send myriads and myriads of angels to declare to his humble subjects that he's arrived. But that's not how Jesus arrives at all. There's no fanfare. Yes, there are angels proclaiming and glorying, but John skips right over that. He doesn't tell us about that. He gives us John the Baptist. So we have the word that was in the beginning, who was with God, who was God, who is life and light, who is coming into the world. And John the Baptist is the one who is called to make that known. Interestingly, from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, this John the Baptist is a fulfillment of that prophecy, behold, I send my messenger. And that word messenger is angel in 
Hebrew. It can be angel or messenger. They're the same. They're interchangeable. And he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And so God has prepared a messenger that will come and make ready the way for the Messiah, the one who is the messenger of the covenant here described. And the word could, many Jews speculated that maybe it was an angel that was going to prepare the way for uh, the Messiah to come. But the important thing to notice is that John says there was a man sent from God. And this is encouraging to me because he uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Like prepare the way for the very light and life of the world, the Son of God. He chose ordinary men with feet of clay. Nothing special about John the Baptist. We're going to spend a lot of time on John the Baptist when we finish the prologue. So we'll go into more depth about his character and and the calling that God has for him. I just want to kind of, just as John is doing, just basically surface the theme of being a witness. And who is this character? And what we notice is that there's some continuity between all of the ways that God has demonstrated his extraordinary power through ordinary people, right? I mean, Moses wasn't anything special, God chose him, and he said, look, I can't even speak. Maybe he had a stutter or some speech impediment, but he said, I'm not eloquent enough. I can't go before Pharaoh and declare, let my people go. I, I can't do this job. And he made excuse after excuse. And, of course, we know that the Lord was gracious to him and did provide Aaron to go along with him. But he still used a man who was ordinary who didn't have all the greatest giftings and abilities. And down through history, we can recount all of the ordinary men and women that God used to do something powerful. The apostles were not powerful or rich or famous. None of them did anything spectacular. There was a zealot, probably one of those January 6th insurrectionists, you know, those kind of guys. Uh, There was fishermen, there was a tax collector, there was all kinds of just ordinary, you know, not really high politic people, not really powerful, not really rich or famous. And God used them to literally turn the world upside down. Twelve ordinary guys. God uses means to accomplish his purpose. And it seems, and thankfully, the weaker the better. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, after he had reasoned with God to remove whatever this thorn in his flesh was, he said, this is God's response. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly on my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So don't think that you can't be used by God to bear witness just because you don't have a degree in Bible or theology. You haven't read the latest apologetics book that's uh, rapidly becoming popular in, in in the evangelical world. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. 
God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong, as Paul also says. So imagine that if many of the men and women that God raised up throughout history just said no, what if they all responded as Jonah did? And they said, I'm going the other way. Nineveh is this way, I'm going to Tarshish that way. What if Moses did that? What if he said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm content to be a shepherd here. I, I really feel like I'm just going to do a disservice. I'll probably end up sinning. And maybe I'll lead the people wrong, which he did, and he did. And maybe he could have just reasoned without excuse and said, no, I think I'm going to stay here. That's how absurd it would be for us to when we make excuses and fail to bear witness to the very same amazing good news. You see, God is writing his story with a bunch of characters that in and of themselves amount to very little. But, as the author of Hebrews says in chapter 11, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. On and on and on. The mighty deeds that these faithful men and women who were ordinary accomplished through the power of God. If John was an angel, if this text said, there was an angel sent from God whose name was John, I guarantee you, That we would make an excuse and say, I am not an angel, and therefore I do not need to bear witness to Jesus Christ. But John said it was a man, a man like you and like me, who was sent to bear witness to the Messiah. What excuse can you make when such an ordinary person is called to do such an extraordinary thing? But there's encouragement here, right? Because... God can use you and me. And he does. He continues to raise up ordinary people like me. God draws straight with crooked sticks, right? But we also notice that John was sent from God. The word sent is the same word that we use for an apostle, somebody who's a sent one. He is commissioned with, by God and given authority to proclaim the gospel. Aha! Gotcha! See, I wasn't commissioned by God. And I wasn't given the same mission as John the Baptist. I told you I don't have to do what John the Baptist is called to because, look, he's specially sent from God. And I haven't been given that. Yes, John the Baptist is unique. None of us are to be John the Baptist preparing the way for the Messiah. He's already come. The way has already been prepared. But that does not mean that we are not all commissioned to bear witness about the very same word who was with God, who was God, who was life and light. We are all called to bear witness to Jesus Christ. Notice Jesus' final words before he ascended to his father, Matthew 28. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son 
and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Notice all authority, not just in heaven, but on the earth, has been given to Jesus. And he's the one commissioning you. He's the one telling you to go and to make his name known amongst the nations. He is calling you. He is commissioning you. Go and make disciples of all the nations. And so this commission extends to his whole church. And because the church, it extends to you as members of the church. You are not John. John is not Christ. Notice what it says in verse 8. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. And in verse 15, John bore witness about him and cried out, This is the one I said, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. You're not John the Baptist, and you're not Christ, but you are called to bear witness about Christ. My pastor Russ used to say, say stuff to people on purpose about Jesus. Say stuff to people on purpose. Don't let it be an accident. All I had my WWJD on, so that's, they saw it. I know they saw it. No, say stuff to people on purpose about Jesus. And that's helpful. So John is sent by God, but what is he sent as? Well, he's sent as a witness. What, it, what does it mean to be a witness? There's an interesting um, thing John does throughout the gospel is that he'll use a word that has maybe multiple shades of meaning, and he'll use that one word to convey both of them. And so there is a double emphasis on witness, right? He says, uh, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light. He is emphasizing witness. And of all the gospel writers, John uses this word grouping of testimony or witness or testify more than any of the other gospel writers. And the apostle John includes many witnesses in the gospel, all testifying that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, so that you may believe. Remember, that's his purpose. That's why he's writing. He tells us explicitly, I am the only reason I'm including these signs and these things that Jesus did is so that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So very briefly, I just want to look at some of the witnesses that God has raised up. We're going to be in the Gospel of John for a long time. So sometimes it's helpful because we're going to be focusing so much on the tree, looking at all the bark and all the little intricate shades of the leaves, and we might lose the forest. But we want to zoom out and see what are all of the witnesses that John portrays in his gospel. And I, and I found eight of them. You might find more, but these, I think, represent a big portion of John's witnesses. The first, there is the witness of God the Father. In John eight eighteen. Jesus said, the Father who sent me bears witness about me. The second, Jesus, God the Son, also bears witness to himself. He said, if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. John eight fourteen. The third is the witness of God the Holy Spirit, 
whom Jesus promised to send when he returned to heaven. He said in John 15, 26, When the Helper comes, who I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. The fourth, Jesus also pointed to his works. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. John 10, 25. This is an important emphasis in the gospel. John records marvelous works that Jesus performed to demonstrate his deity. He does God-like things. Only God can do these things. Therefore, the implication is he is God. The fifth is, of course, the witness of Scripture. The most important purpose of the Old Testament was to give prophecies that would be fulfilled in Jesus. To teach God's will in a way that would be completed by him and by various means to symbolize and anticipate Jesus' coming and the salvation he would bring. Jesus said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. John five thirty nine. One of the Old Testament prophecies that we already looked at concerned a forerunner of the Messiah whose ministry would resemble the prophet Elijah. And this is John the Baptist. He's the sixth witness. And the seventh witness is Jesus' disciples, including, of course, John himself, right? What is this whole gospel but John the apostle bearing witness about Jesus, the light? The eighth witness is the, man, the men and women who personally encountered Jesus. One was a Samaritan woman who Jesus met by the well. After Jesus had revealed himself to her, she went throughout her town presenting her witness, her testimony. Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? John four twenty nine. Another was the man who was born blind, to whom Jesus miraculously gave sight. When the religious leaders tried to silence him, he gave this witness. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, I now see. John 9.25 This is an impressive list that the Apostle John lays out for us of witnesses. Declaring the truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And we might just call this evangelism. One helpful definition I've taken from a little booklet in the Nine Marks series I would commend to you called Evangelism. It's very small, but it just gives a succinct definition. He says, evangelism is teaching or preaching the gospel with the aim or intent to persuade or convert. Okay, so we know that we're presenting the gospel with the with purpose of uh, persuading somebody to believe. We want them to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Well, what is the gospel? The gospel is the joyful message from God that leads to our salvation. That's a good uh, one-line answer. And then, what? okay, so what's this message from God? The message from God is the ex- explanation of who God is, the human predicament of sin and lostness, the work of Christ for our salvation, and the response people must make to gain a restored relationship with God. Now, if we're going to bear witness about Jesus, we need to know these fundamental things. We need to know what we're trying to do. What is the purpose behind our bearing witness about the light? We're going to spend a lot of time as we walk through the Gospel of John talking about evangelism. 
And throughout our uh, journey in the Gospel of John, we'll find different and new ways that we can share our faith. I'm not going to talk about them all today because we would need a lot more time. But what is clear from these verses in the prologue is that God raised up a, wish, a witness, commissioned him to be a witness concerning his son Jesus, who was the word from the beginning, who was with God and was God. That's what John the Baptist came to bear witness about. He came to testify, to say this is true of him. He is the word made flesh who's dwelling among us. He is life in and of himself. What we have seen then is that despite the unique role he played in preparing the way for Jesus, we too have a similar calling to be witnesses. God has called us to bear witness about Jesus Christ. And he's still busy raising up these witnesses to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to all the nations. Each one of us is called into this work. But it remains for us to look a little bit more closely at what John came to bear witness to. So we have that God raises up servants, but he also calls them to speak boldly about Jesus. And so notice in verse 7, it says, He came as a witness. Why? To bear witness about the light. For what purpose? So that all might believe through him. So let's look at these two things. About the light, he came to testify about the light. And John makes this so emphatic. He's not the light. John the Baptist is not the light. He came to bear witness about the light. They got so confused as they came out to them. They say, are you the Christ? No, I'm not the Christ. I'm bearing witness about the Christ. He is speaking about Jesus. And it says... he. In verse 15, which will be repeated later on in the chapter. This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And that's kind of a head scratcher. You're like, how does somebody who come after you be before you? But it's because Jesus, the one, the word made flesh, existed before time. He was in the beginning with God and that eternal God came and took on flesh. And yes, he began his ministry after John the Baptist, but he ranked higher than John. He was before John because he was before John, right? And so John wants it to be clear, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the one who's going to save you from sin. I'm not the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. He is. He's pointing away from himself to Jesus. But we tend in our witness bearing to make everything about us. We're me-focused generation, right? We're the I generation. And this tends to lead us towards the prosperity gospel. We want to begin by telling them how great our life has turned out because we've given it to Christ. You know, nobody starts off with saying like, hey, uh, you know, I'm a Christian and I suffer every day. It's so hard. I have to take up my cross and die. It's literally death every day. That's what I am. I'm just dying to myself. I'm dying to all my natural desires, and I'm trying to live to Christ. It's horrible. 
Right? That's not a good salesman pitch, right? So what do we do? We say, yes, Jesus is so good. It's so great. He's going to make your life wonderful. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, that's true. That is true. God does love you, and He does have a plan for your life. But if we begin there, if we begin with the benefits, and there are real benefits to come into Christ, we end up perverting the gospel and leading people into health and wealth. They lead people to Jesus for what they can get from Him. What can He do for me? We've talked a lot about moralistic, therapeutic deism, right? We have defined God as some cosmic butler. He's there. He's sort of concerned about the world. He loves that when people are good and he hates evil and he rewards people who are good, uh, never mind what the definition of good really is. But he's always there when you need him. You just call on him and he'll come and he'll answer and he'll help you. He's like a divine butler. But that's not the God of Scripture, right? We come to God as miserable sinners, justly deserving His wrath. And we come to to experience freedom, of course. But we want to begin where the gospel begins, with our lost condition, and show them the hope that God in Christ has overcome that. So what we see is that John's mission is very narrow and specific. He has a particular calling. He is not called to do multiple things. He's called to one narrow and specific thing. You see, we, are, we have been having a lot of trouble in the church lately defining ourselves. What is our identity as the church? What should we be doing? And there are some on one side of the spectrum. We might call them transformationalists, who believe that we, as the people of God, are participating with God in His restoration of all things. So the scope of the church is literally everything, because God is in the, is in the um, process of remaking everything because of sin. So, but, but as some have said, if everything is mission, then nothing is mission, Right? Uh, if you broaden out the scope of the church, then, of course, we, we must be involved in politics. We must be involved in creation care. We must be uh, doing uh, justice in our uh, communities. And those are all good things. Those are all wonderful things. But is that the mission of the church? Or is that the mission of individuals who make up the church? You see, Jesus says very clearly in the Great Commission that our, our mission is narrow and focused. It's specific. Go to, the na- go to all the nations, baptizing them and teaching them to everything that I have commanded you. Right? It's a very narrow and specific calling of bringing the good news of the gospel to the nations. Uh, Kevin DeYoung, in his book on the mission of the church, says this, What if we are not called to partner with God in all that He undertakes? What if the work of salvation, restoration, and recreation are divine gifts to which we bear witness, rather than works in which we collaborate? What if our mission is not identical with God's mission? What if we carry on Jesus' mission, but not in the same way He carried it out? 
Isn't it better to locate our responsibility in the tasks we are given rather than in the work we see God accomplishing? End quote. You see, I know that there might be some here who will think, well, then God doesn't care about the creation or we shouldn't concern ourselves with justice or politics or working to make this a better world. That's not what I'm saying at all. Many of you here today may be called to those specific functions, but the church is not. The church is called to proclaim the gospel to the nations. And we need to keep the main thing the main thing. And that's inc- that includes when you are in evangelizing. We have to remember to keep Jesus at the very center of what we are preaching, what we are telling people. The gospel is not about meeting felt needs or social justice or personal peace and affluence. Those all might be fruits of the gospel taking root in a community, but they are not the reason for the gospel. The reason for the gospel is to reconcile sinners back to God. It's not even primarily about living a different lifestyle. But of course, that will come. You will live a different lifestyle once you've come to Christ. The message of the gospel is about Jesus Christ. It's about Jesus reconciling sinners to himself. It's about the forgiveness of sins. The gospel is good news because God in Christ did not count your sins against you. He did not treat you as an enemy, but he treated his son like that so that you don't have to. The gospel is good news for you, but it's news about Jesus. And that's what he has done for you and what you must do in response. So don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that we shouldn't care about the environment. We should. We should be actively involved in ways where we can steward the creation that God has given us. Nor am I saying that we should not care about social justice issues. We should. We should want to reframe them according to biblical notions of justice, but we should. But the mission of the church is to bear witness to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who restores and recreates communities. I'm not, these are not mutually exclusive, but we have to focus on the narrow mission and calling of the church. But also... In our witness bearing, we have a purpose and a goal. We're not just bearing witness to Christ like uh, you might see, which we've seen throughout time, where it's just, I got to get the news out there, and it doesn't really matter if it's persuasive. It doesn't matter if they believe it. it do, I, I've done my job. Jesus is Lord, repent or you're going to burn. You know, that's, that's true, to an extent, but it's not the best way to evangelize, is it? Right? It sort of turns people away from the message. There is a response, and it must be the goal and purpose of all our evangelism, and that is believe. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. I think that we've done a disservice because in many times in our history, we have uh, defined evangelism poorly, right? It's about making a decision. But we talked in Sunday school this morning about uh, justification and adoption and, and these doctrines and how they manifest themselves in the life of, of, pe- of God's people. Not always the same. 
Sometimes our faith grows gradually. Yes, there is a a, a moment when God declares us righteous in Christ. But in truth, that moment was before the foundation of the world. And its accomplishment took place 2,000 years ago on the cross. So we, we don't want to pit our doctrines against our experience of those doctrines. We need to uh, have our experiences shaped by the Scripture, to be sure. So there are two ways that we can think about at, um, the, the, uh, the way that we believe the testimony of the gospel. There are two ways we can look at it. We can look at it from a theological perspective, and we can look at it from an existential perspective. Theologically, we know that faith is a gift. God is the one that works it in our hearts. It's not something I can just drum up on my own, right? And I can't force it on somebody else. I can't will it. As much as we've all tried, right, we have those people that we've talked with about the gospel and these things make our hearts sore. We're excited that our sins are forgiven and we have new life and we want to tell somebody that we love and they don't get it. They don't understand and they look at you like you have four heads and they think, how can you believe in something like that? And that's because faith is a gift. It's something that God gives. He works it in the hearts of his people. And of course, there's some comfort there, right? It doesn't all rest on my performance or my persuasive abilities. Sometimes it really is just me saying Jesus is Lord and somebody recognizing that is true. And then they turn to the scriptures to see more about this Jesus. So that is theological. We can say what Jesus said in John 6.44, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And also Paul points out in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We know that no amount of our abilities, that's not where faith rests. Faith rests in the sovereign purposes of God. But, existentially, God uses means. God uses you. He uses people to bring about that kind of faith. He uses the preaching of the Word, the reading of Scripture, and of course, coming alongside somebody and pointing them to Jesus Christ. I want you to notice something, and especially I'll draw your attention to this as we move throughout John's Gospel, but Jesus presents a lot of facts and evidence about himself being the Christ, the Son of God. And how many people accept that evidence? Not very many. I mean, we find in Acts 1, we've got 120 people cowering up in a, in a room waiting for the Holy Spirit, right? Three-year ministry, only 120 people? I, he's got to go back to church planning school. You see, a lot of people rejected the very frank and honest and open evidence that Jesus is the Christ. He did work that only God can do. He turned water, 30 gallons of water into wine. He healed those who were blind. He raised Lazarus from the dead. And of course, he died and then rose again from the dead on the third day. And he appeared to a host of people. 
as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. What do we notice from this is that facts, evidence, and data are not the most reliable tools that produce belief. And we've seen this, I think, so clearly in display during the COVID pandemic, right? You have two camps. You got the vax and the anti-vax, and never the twain shall meet, right? Uh, it's, it, it, and it, this is um, the function of not facts and evidence and data, but community. Community is the biggest driver for belief. Who is your tribe and what do they believe? This is why we're so polarized. This is why, as a Republican, I would get into deep water talking to some people about my views on immigration. And it shouldn't be that way. But we have such tribal loyalties because of our community, that our beliefs are shaped by our community. So how do we influence non-Christians? We know it's not just telling them a bunch of facts and evidence that's overwhelming. Those methods don't work any longer. They might have worked in a, in a culture that was predominantly Christian. You might have been able to go up to somebody with a track and tell them about Jesus, and they might accept that. But we don't live in that culture any longer. We live in a post-Christian culture. And Jesus and the Christian truth is seen as being a negative, something that maybe has caused all the problems in the world. And so in order to influence somebody, it's not about showing them a bunch of evidence or facts. Those things won't work. It's about including them in your community. It's about bringing them in. You see, we, we look out at the world through lenses. We have like a, a grid that we place on the world. We might call this a plausibility structure. If I told you last night, uh, I'm taking this illustration from Sam Chan's book on evangelism. If I told you last night that I, an alien spaceship came and they took me in the spaceship and I went to Jupiter, I had dinner with them through a time warp and then I came back the same night, you know, you guys will look at me like I'm crazy. And nobody believes that story. But if I told the same story and then Dale stands up and says, yeah, that happened to me too. And then John stands up and said, yes, that, I, just, I just did that last night too. And then Hillary and then Dave and on and on, 60% of the congregation stands up and said, that is true. That happened to me. Now, what do you think about that story? it's starting to sound like you might be the crazy one for not believing it, right? And so our beliefs are shaped by the community that we live in. If I tell you the story of the gospel that Jesus came 2,000 years ago as the Son of God, and He lived a perfect life, and He demonstrated that He was God by all of the miraculous things that He did, and then He died And he rose again from the dead. And now he went back to heaven. But he sent his spirit to take the things that he purchased through his redemption and apply them to you. If you've never heard that story, it sounds just as implausible as the alien story. Sounds just as unacceptable. We have to be able to be in community with other people. Our witness can't just happen one-on-one we got to invite them in to our community so that they see they're not crazy. They all believe this. They all believe that Jesus came and died and rose from the dead. 
But in order to invite them in, you've got to go to their things too. You've got to be a part of their life. You have to cultivate relationships with non-believers. And here's where it hurts me the most. I mean, I see church people all week long, and then church people, that's all I see. right? And I have to be very intentional about getting outside of that just to try to cultivate friendships with people who are not in my community. But many of you have an advantage on me. You go to places of employment. You work. And of course, we all live in neighborhoods which are surrounded by people who don't know Jesus. You have to invite them into your life. And you have to be a part of their life. If they invite you to something, you have to go too. Why would you expect them to come to church if you won't go to their sporting event or their barbecue or their movie? You have to be able to be a part of their lives. And if you invite them in to yours and they begin uh, slowly, their plausibility structure will erode and they will see and you will be able to speak maybe facts and evidence that might be persuasive. My point is that we need to understand the culture that we live in in order to persuade people so that they might believe about the light. We can't just use the tactics that worked in a previous culture, cultural moment, even in America, where we could presuppose that Christianity was a good thing. It was a value add. But we don't live in that world anymore. So it's ignorant for us to keep doing the same things and expecting the same results. We have to change our tactics. So... One of the things I've advocated for, some might call it friendship evangelism. And people have critiqued this because they say, well, we make a friend. You make a friend with somebody for years and years and years, and you never actually end up saying anything about Jesus. And this does happen, right? Right? We become comfortable with them. Now the relationship has a certain status quo, and you want to keep that up. I'm not advocating for that kind of thing. You should be open about your faith and be willing to speak about Jesus at any point in the relationship. But nor do I want to go on the other side where it's just proclamation. I just go, I stand on the corner, I say, repent or or God's wrath's coming like Jonah, right? Uh, I'm not advocating for that either, but our friendship evangelism needs to include the proclamation of the gospel. It can't just be about you making friends and enjoying time with them because you're not really loving them right so it's a both and it's not an either or there's of course so much more that i can say about evangelism we'll continue to think through these issues together to think of the creative ways that we can reach our neighborhoods our community with the gospel art is a wonderful way sports There are so many avenues for us to use in our apologetic method to point to the God who created the world, who created art, who gave it its beauty and its splendor, and it all points back to him, right, who ordered the universe in such a way. And so we want to be creative in the ways, but we want to remember that our aim is to speak about Jesus, not ourselves, not another gospel, but Jesus, with the aim to persuade. So... Go and bear witness to the light. God is continuing to raise up servants to bear witness concerning his son. So we must speak boldly about Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we do give you thanks for the witness of John the Baptist, who many of us are sitting here today.
recipient, recipients of that witness, not least of the Apostle John, who was instrumental in my own conversion, just reading the story of the gospel. Father, so many have come to saving faith through the message of John the Baptist and the Apostle John and, and other witnesses that you have raised up throughout history. And Father, we know that you continue to do this work. Prepare each of us so that we may bear witness about Christ with the aim to persuade people to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Bless our witness and our lives that we may be adorned by the gospel and have winsomeness, not only in the things that we say, but the ways that we live. For we pray this in Jesus' name, and amen. This morning, as we